It was C.S. Lewis who so vividly expressed this thought. God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. Pain and adversity, whether it be physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, is one of God's most effective methods for shaping us, for molding us, for conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. But if we would be honest, when we are hurting, we rarely see our adversity in that light. Our hearts usually cry out something like this, Lord, I'm drowning in a sea of perplexity. Waves of confusion crash over me. I'm too weak to shout for help. Either quiet the waves or lift me above them. It's too late to learn to swim. What does the Word of God have to say about trials, adversity, pain, suffering, tribulations, problems, hard times, afflictions? I want us to consider that subject in this study. What is to be our response to adversity, sorrow, sickness, disease, or death? What is God doing when we are suffering? What is God doing when we are hurting? If I were to ask for a show of hands from all those who are hurting, we would be shocked at the response. We are brilliant at hiding our pain, whether it be physical, emotional, marital, financial, or even spiritual. So this message is for those who hurt. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 1. Back in Hebrew Scripture, just prior to the book of Psalms, Job, chapter 1. Job is one of the earliest books in Hebrew Scripture, even though it is very late in the chronology in which it's listed in our English Bibles. In fact, some scholars believe that this was the first book of the Bible ever written. To me, that is significant because the book of Job basically deals with the problem of suffering and the sovereignty of God. There is one question that weaves its way all the way through this book, and that is the question, why? But the answer is never really given. Well, at least it's not given to Job. We know because we have the perspective of reading the whole story. But Job is never given the answer. God chose not to give the answer because in that case, God allowed Job to suffer to prove something or demonstrate something to Satan. And that is something that we probably rarely consider when we are experiencing adversity. Think about it. When you are going through difficulty, when you are suffering immensely, do you ever think that possibly God is using you as an object lesson to Satan? We usually don't think that way, and it's understandable because we don't want to be puffed up with pride like, oh, I'm so important, God is using me as an object lesson to Satan. But that's what the book of Job is all about. It is so interesting to me that one of the first books, maybe the first book God chose to write, deals with adversity 
pain and suffering. There are six principles that I want us to consider as we look at the subject of pain and suffering. But before we launch into those, let's read the text to have it fresh in our minds. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned or turned away from evil. Then down in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord... And Satan also came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Principle number one, suffering is inevitable. It is impossible for us to live in this fallen world and not experience pain. In Job 2.10, Job said to his wife, Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? You see, it is part and parcel of our experience as creatures on fallen earth that there will be good times and there will be hard times. There will be good times and there will be times of pain. That's why when James writes about hard times, He says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. He didn't say count it all joy if you fall into various trials, but when 
you fall into trials. It's inevitable. It is inevitable that we will experience adversity. In Matthew 6, 33 and 34, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for the things of itself. And then the verse ends with these words, Sufficient unto the day is its own evil. Basically what Jesus was saying is, Why worry about tomorrow? Every day has enough trouble of its own. Every day has enough problems, enough evil. In John 16, Jesus said, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have, and then the Greek word there, trouble, tribulation, difficulty. In the world you will have this, Jesus said. You see, beloved, adversity is inevitable. Count on it. Plan on it. We can't prepare for distress after a crisis occurs. Preparation must take place beforehand. That's why Proverbs 24.10 says, If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. In other words, you haven't built up strength. You haven't planned on adversity. You haven't counted on it. We better plan on it because it is inevitable. Principle number two is pain strikes without partiality. Suffering strikes without partiality. We tend to think, if we're honest about it, we tend to think that misfortune should only come to the ungodly. This is what the psalmist struggled with in Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Why? That's what the psalmist was wrestling with. Why do the wicked prosper and why do the righteous suffer? We tend to think that misfortune should only come to the ungodly. But Job 1.1 makes it clear that Job was a righteous, godly man. His suffering was not a result of any defect in his character. It's not as if God looked at Job and said, You know, I think he needs some refining. I think there are some rough edges there that need to be worked on. So we'll take him through some suffering. No, his suffering was not a result of any defect in his character. Adversity strikes without partiality. Beloved, what happens to us in this life is not a reflection of our spiritual condition before God. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus said, God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So we need to be very careful about judging our relationship to God based on misfortune or prosperity. We need to be very careful about judging our relationship to God based on success or failure or hardship or ease. Dismiss forever the thought that adversity is automatically a sign that God is displeased with you. In fact, many times, adversity is a sign that you greatly please God. 
That was the case in Job's situation. I mean, the text speaks for itself. Just read it. Because he was such a righteous man, Satan targeted him, and God allowed him to be tested to an unfathomable extent. So the fact that you are a Christian doesn't exempt you from experiencing pain. In 1 Peter 1.6, Peter said this to a group of Christians. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. And what he's referring to in the context is that the fact that you're kept by God's power. God's power holds on to you. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a season, you are in heaviness through manifold trials, through a multitude of trials. They were going through many trials, and they were precious believers who loved Christ. So don't you dare believe that if you're going through adversity, it's because God is mad at you or you are displeasing to the Lord. Now, certainly any time we go through anything, prosperity or difficulty, we should always be evaluating our lives. But don't make the assumption, well, adversity means God is, he's really going after you because there's so much wrong in your life. I remember hearing Johnny Erickson Tata say that one of the hardest things to deal with related to her paralysis is when people tell her, and she's been told this multitudes of times, when people tell her that if she had more faith, she would get out of her wheelchair and walk. Or when she has been told that she must have sin in her life because God hasn't healed her. That is terrible theology. Heretical theology. So pain is inevitable. Suffering strikes without partiality. In principle number three, our suffering is often severe. You know, we've become so familiar with the story of Job that we fail to read this incident with feeling. I can't even begin to relate to the severity of Job's experience, bankruptcy, chronic pain, ten fresh graves. But I don't believe that that was Job's worst or most intense suffering. Not as I read the book. I believe his most painful suffering was his spiritual suffering. Job was suffering in two ways spiritually. He was suffering from confusion and he was suffering from assumption. Let me explain what I mean. Job was suffering from confusion spiritually, because he couldn't understand why God was allowing all of this to happen. He couldn't see anything good in what he was experiencing. And let me tell you, that is devastating. When you are going through an intensely painful situation that makes no sense whatsoever and seems useless, seems to be a waste, it is torture to be so confused and so perplexed. But Job was also suffering spiritually from assumption. What I mean is, many people around Job were assuming that there had to be something wrong in Job's life. There has to be something there that's secret behind the scenes. That's what his friends even thought. They assumed there had to be something wrong in Job's life to lose his health and lose his wealth and lose his children. 
when you are already going through something that is almost impossible to endure, and when people around you are assuming that it has to be because of something wrong in your life spiritually, the pain is indescribable. That's what Job was suffering. The Apostle Paul was another man who knew the severity of suffering. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4, over in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so then death is working in us. Death is working in us. Over in chapter 11, he gives more specifics. Turn over a few pages to chapter 11. Verse 24, he begins to catalog some of his sufferings. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Paul suffered greatly, both physically and emotionally. And according to Galatians six seventeen, he was scarred as a result. Are you scarred from your pain? Are you scarred physically or emotionally? I hope you know that one is just as real as the other. When adversity strikes severely, it often leaves scars. I appreciate Amy Carmichael's words on this subject. She has penned this. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascended star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravenous beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that followed me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? Beloved, tucked away in a quiet corner of every life, there are wounds and scars. If they were not there, we would not need the great physician, nor would we need each other. 
Principle number four, pain and suffering are often from Satan. The reason I mention this principle is because our tendency so often when going through adversity is to blame God. God, why are you doing this to me? God, why are you afflicting me this way? That was Job's struggle in his ordeal. But Job 1 and 2 make it clear that in that situation, the trouble was coming from Satan. Since you're in 2 Corinthians, turn over to chapter 12, and we'll see this in the life of Paul. Chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is a fabulous perspective of distress. Paul says basically in this passage, I realize, I I know that my difficulty is coming from Satan, but that's okay because God is sovereign and he is using this in my life for his purposes. Paul's adversity was coming from Satan. But Paul knew that God is sovereign and that God even uses the works of Satan to accomplish good in our lives. And that leads us to our fifth principle, pain and suffering are allowed by God. Or if you prefer the term, pain and suffering are ordained by God. Nothing comes into our lives that has not first been sifted through the hands of our Heavenly Father. The story of Job makes that clear. Satan was only allowed to do in Job's life what he was granted permission to do by God. So yes, Job's adversity came from Satan, but it was allowed by God. And by the way, it's not as if God and Satan are two equals, one good and the other evil. Satan is a creature created by God. He is infinitely inferior to God. He only has the freedom to do what God allows him to do. God is sovereign and he is in control of your circumstances. He is aware of what you are going through. Back up to the Gospel of Matthew, just a few books earlier in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, verse 29. Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. What Jesus was saying there is, listen, God knows. He knows every time a sparrow hops on the ground, falls to the ground, he knows what you're going through. It does matter to God that you're hurting. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your care upon him, 
for he cares for you. The literal translation of that verse, maybe a little more literal rendering, it would be this. Casting all your care upon him, for it matters to him about you. I love that expression. It matters to him about you. I've lost track of how many times I've had people talking to me as, as a pastor, as a shepherd, and they're going through immense difficulty, and they say something to the effect, well, I just wonder if it even matters to God. I mean, I wonder if he even cares. He has so much. He's got the universe to run. Does he really care about my problems? It matters to him about you. No matter how deep the water is that you are going through, remember that God has allowed it and he cares. But he still may choose to let you go through the valley. Why? Because principle number six is pain and suffering can refine our character. Please notice how I worded that. Pain and suffering can refine our character. It's conditional. It's not automatic. Pain and suffering can refine our character if we respond properly, which is why throughout the New Testament we are exhorted to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The sad fact is some people come through adversity and they are bitter, angry, resentful, hardened, and even less sensitive to the Lord than they were before. But God has a different plan. He wants us to humble ourselves under his mighty hand and allow him to do whatever it is that he is doing. Adversity is a powerful tool in the hand of God to make us more like Christ. That's exactly what Romans 8 says. Turn with me over to that familiar passage, Romans chapter 8. You know this verse. Many of you have it memorized. Verse 28. <clears throat> and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, when you quote that verse, don't forget the next verse. Don't forget to quote the next verse. For, for, this is further explanation. For whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, Romans 8, 28 and 29 does not say that everything that happens to a Christian is good. Everything that happens to a Christian is not good. Don't you dare tell parents who have just lost a child to some rare disease, oh, that's good. That's not good. It's not good if your spouse walks out on you and leaves you and your family. That's, that's not good. That's wicked. That's sinful. This does not say that everything that happens to a Christian is good. What Romans 8.28 says is that God makes good come out of it. And part of the good is that God shapes us more into his son's image, which is why verse 29 
follows right on the heels of verse 28. Job may have eventually realized this principle because in Job 23.10 he said, But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me I shall come forth as gold. There are a couple ways to take that statement by Job. He may be actually defending himself, saying, He knows me, and when he's tried me, he'll prove that I'm innocent. That's one possible interpretation. The other is that he's saying, I don't understand what I'm going through, why God is trying me like this, but I know I will come forth as gold. I will be refined in the process. Maybe Job knew that gold was purified by fire. Do you realize that gold, I've been told, I'm no chemist, but I've been told that gold is completely transparent if it could be completely purified. Maybe that's why the golden streets in heaven are transparent as glass. They're totally pure. God's goal in suffering is to purify us, to refine us. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I'll never forget the words of A.W. Tozer who said, in essence, it is doubtful that God can use any man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Since we're in Romans, I want to show you a great verse back in chapter 5. A lot of Christians know Romans 8, 28. Not nearly as many know Romans 5. Look at this verse, Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. We glory in troubles. We glory in adversity. That's, that's quite a different view of tribulations. Why did Paul glory in tribulations? Look at the next phrase in verse 3. Knowing that tribulation produces And maybe your translation says perseverance or endurance or patience. This word is made up of two Greek words. Hupa means under. Meno means to abide. You put the two together and that forms this Greek word which describes the ability to abide or live under affliction. Now it goes without saying that that's not easy to do. To live under affliction. To live under bad circumstances. We develop that quality during adversity. One of the best illustrations I know of this is Joseph. All the way back in the book of Genesis. Do you remember all the hard times Joseph went through in his life? He was hated by his brothers. Sold into slavery. Into a foreign land foreign people. Then he was accused of attempted rape, which is not at all what happened. He was thrown into prison. He eventually interpreted a dream of a butler and a baker, and he asked the one who was going to be restored, please, when you get restored, remember me. So it's understandable that he assumed he would be remembered. The very next verse in the story says, two years later. 
He was forgotten for two more years. That's a long time when you're counting the days and the weeks and the months. But what kind of response did he have toward all of his hardship? He said to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it unto good. What a response to adversity. The bitter news of Dawson Trotman's drowning swept like cold wind across Scroon Lake to the shoreline. Eyewitnesses tell of the profound anxiety, the tears, the helpless disbelief in the faces of those who now looked out across the deep blue water. Everyone's face except one, Lila Trotman, Dawson's widow. As she suddenly walked upon the scene, a close friend shouted, Oh, Lila, he's gone! Dawson's gone! To that she replied in calm assurance the words of Psalm 115.3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. All of the anguish, the sudden loneliness that normally consumes and cripples those who survived did not invade that woman's heart. Instead, she leaned hard upon her sovereign Lord who had once again done what he pleased. If we would just realize, if we would just remember, if we would just keep in mind that pain, suffering refines our character, then maybe our perspective would be different. That's why James says to count it joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith works patience or endurance. But let endurance have her perfect work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Did you know that a diamond and a pencil lead are basically made up of the same ingredients? The only difference is that a diamond is formed under intense pressure and heat. And when we're going through dark days, we must remember that and we must look ahead to the end result. That's what Jesus did. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. In other words, Jesus... What got him through, if you want to say it that way, what helped him endure was looking ahead to the joy that was set before him, knowing what would result from this pain, salvation, redemption, glory. So he endured. We have to look ahead to what will result from our pain. Because if we just focus on the pain, the suffering, it will cripple you. A number of years ago, I ran across this illustration. I've never forgotten it. Pearls are the product of pain. For some unknown reason, the shell of the oyster gets pierced, and an alien substance, a grain of sand, slips inside. On the entry of that foreign irritant, all the resources within the tiny sensitive oyster rush to the spot and begin to release healing fluids that otherwise would have remained dormant. By and by, the irritant is covered and the wound is healed. 
by a pearl. No other gem has so fascinating a history. It is the symbol of stress, a healed wound, a precious tiny jewel conceived through irritation, born of adversity, nursed by adjustments. Had there been no wounding, no irritating interruption, there could have been no pearl. Some oysters are never wounded, and those who seek for gems toss them aside, fit only for stew. No wonder our heavenly home has as its entrance pearly gates. Those who go through them need no explanation. They are the ones who have been wounded, bruised, and have responded to the sting of irritations with the pearl of adjustment. As we close this morning, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49, back into Hebrew Scripture to Isaiah 49. Here in this chapter, we see a glimpse of the faithfulness of God to his people. In the context, this statement is directed to Israel, God's people under the Old Covenant, but the application is to us here in the present under the New Covenant. Isaiah 49, verse 15. 49.15, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And if we stopped there, we would probably say, no, 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 no. No mother could do that. But you hear the stories. You know the stories. Babies thrown into dumpsters. Babies, nursing babies left. It's, it's unfathomable. So the answer comes, yet, Surely they may forget. Yes. As much as we may think that kind of thing could not happen, it does happen. It happens a lot. Surely they may forget. Yet, God says, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. It's an Old Testament Statement saying the same thing many New Testament passages say. God knows. God cares. God never forgets. He remembers. Beloved, if you're going through adversity, don't think God has forgotten you. If you're suffering, and especially if it's long, not just weeks or months, years, don't think God has forgotten you. He is faithful. It matters to him about you. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch God's methods, watch his ways how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how God bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he's about. God knows what he's about. 
I close with this poem written by Corey Ten Boom after observing the mangled mass of threads on the underside of her tapestry bookmark which read, God is love. She actually was riding on a bus just sort of holding her bookmark. It read, God is love. She turned it over and it was just a mangled mass of threads all tangled with no rhyme nor reason. And she thought, that's life. And she wrote these words. The poem is titled, The Plan of the Master Weaver. Our lives are but fine weavings that God and we prepare. Each life becomes a fabric planned and fashioned in His care. We may not always see just how the weavings intertwine, but we must trust the Master's hand and follow His design. For He can view the pattern upon the upper side, while we must look from underneath and trust in Him to guide. Sometimes a strand of sorrow is added to His plan, and though it's difficult for us, we still must understand that it's He who fills the shuttle, it's He who knows what's best, so we must weave in patience and leave to Him the rest. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly, shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why the dark threads are as needed in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Beloved, God knows what he's about. He knows what he's about. Let's bow together in prayer. If you are in pain this morning, if you are suffering, turn to Christ. Don't turn from Him. Don't allow bitterness, resentment to invade your heart and turn from Him. It's the worst, the absolute worst thing you could do. Turn to Him. Even if you're not suffering, turn to Christ. If you're here today without a relationship with Christ, turn, turn to Christ. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, thank you that you know what you are about. We don't. So often we don't. And we aren't expected to. And we shouldn't assume that we can know what you're about. Other than that you are about good and that you will work all things together for good. You will cause good to come out of our hardship, our pain, our adversity. Teach us to trust you. And we pray in closing for anyone gathered here who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't have a relationship with him, may your spirit be pleased to use something from our gathering this morning to draw that man or woman to Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.